Welcome to episode 15 of Arts and Crass, the highbrow, lowbrow film podcast. I am Cullen. And I am Todd. I'm a man of reason. And now I'm faced with something supernatural, which frightens me. I am frightened as well. I'm frightened of what we've become. So this is the podcast in which... Uh, Todd, who is an art film connoisseur, but has not seen many horror films, and I, who am a horror film connoisseur who has not seen many art films, engage in cultural exchange. Every time we do a show, I assign him one of my movies to watch, and he assigns me one of his movies to watch, and then we talk about them for you people. Exactly. Is that right? Absolutely. Today, I asked Todd to watch 1977's Alucarda, Mexican film directed by Juan Lopez Moctezuma. Indeed you did. And I, wa- I asked Colin to watch All About My Mother, Todo Sobre Mi Madre, mm-hmm. 1999 by Pedro Moldovar. Yep, indeed. We have so, a coin to flip, don't we? We do have a coin to flip. Uh, All About My Mother and Alucarda. And you know, by the way, it's going to be a good episode of Arts and Crass when we unwittingly choose films that sort of go together very much so dovetail very very dovetail a little bit so uh all right i'm going to i'm going to go ahead and flip the coin todd always calls it in the air and uh i'm going to swing the microphone away from me for a moment oh here it is the big action shenandoah oh and we have a flop it is on the floor being picked up from the carpet the results are shenandoah it is That means Todd wins. That means we're starting with All About My Mother, Todo Sobre Mi Madre, 1999, directed by Almodovar. Written and directed by Almodovar. Yes. And this is important, I think. So, this film is about a woman named Manuela, who at the start of the film lives in Madrid, She's a single mother. Her son is 16, about to turn 17. Manuela, uh, her son's name is Esteban. Manuela works uh, for the Organ Transplant Association. She works as a, um, somebody who finds donors. And also she uh, participates in, in simulations for the education of new doctors so playing the role of a grieving family member who has just lost a loved one uh, in uh, simulations to demonstrate how difficult and tricky a process it can be inquiring of the recently bereaved if they want to donate their loved one's organs. Um, 
Her son Esteban is an aspiring, well, he's not aspiring. He is a writer. He writes a lot. He's a very young intellectual. He loves Truman Capote. He loves Tennessee Williams. Um, he uh, has a lot of questions about his father, and his mother refuses to tell him. Uh, he, it's his uh, 17th birthday, and he has asked his mother to take him to the theater to go see A Streetcar Named Desire, a production of A Streetcar Named Desire, which is being... Um, acted in by a uh, very legendary stage actress named Uma Roja. They go to the play, and uh, while they're watching the play, it becomes apparent that Manuela is very moved by the relationship of Stella and Stanley Kowalski in the play. She, After the play, she reveals to Esteban that she wants as an amateur actress, uh, portrayed the role of Stella in a production of Streetcar and that Esteban's father was Stanley in that same production. Uh, this leads into a conversation where Esteban says, you know, what I really wanted for my birthday was for you to tell me about my father because you've never told me before. And she says, well, if that's really what you want for your birthday, then I'll tell you when we get home. Uh... As they have this conversation, they're waiting in the rain outside of the theater because Esteban wants to get the autograph of um, Uma Roja, the, the star of the stage. Uh, she comes out of the theater, gets in a taxi cab, and drives away, rides away, and Esteban chases after her trying to get that autograph and is hit by a car and dies. Devastated, Manuela goes to... Barcelona to find Esteban's father to make whatever peace she feels she has to make and um, tell him that he had a son. He never knew that he had a son and find this father and uh, make some sort of amends now that Esteban is gone. So there is the setup of your plot. You have a plot where grieving mother goes to find the father of her child that she hasn't seen in... 18 years and that's your plot um when she gets to barcelona the first place she goes is a spot called the field which is really just a field where there are a bunch of cars and taxis with men in them and there are a bunch of prostitutes who hang out in this field and this is sort of known locally as a place where you go to pick up a prostitute do I remember correctly that she had roots in Barcelona? She had lived in Barcelona in her younger days. Yeah. Like returning to her past yeah, yeah, elements. Yeah. Uh, so she goes there and she finds a, a person from her past who is a trans woman whose name is Agrado, who is a prostitute. And they rekindle their relationship. Uh, the arrival of Manuela inspires Agrado to quit the streets and um, you go get a, a legal means of employment, uh, you know, a more legal and more safe way to make money. They go and ask for help from a young nun who is, uh, whose name is Rosa, who is portrayed by Penelope Cruz, the only 
very familiar face uh, that I saw in this movie. Um, Rosa starts to help them, and before long, it comes to it becomes apparent that it is actually Rosa who needs more help from them than they need from her because Rosa is pregnant. We very quickly find out that the father of Rosa's baby is the same (laughs) as the father of Esteban's baby, who is also a trans woman named Lola, who was also a prostitute and has since disappeared. Nobody has seen Lola for four months. Um, Lola was also HIV positive and has infected Rosa, the young nun, with the uh, virus, which later turns into AIDS, and um, she dies in childbirth. Uh, Lola finally shows up at the very end of the film to attend Rosa's funeral. Amends are made. The baby is taken by Manuela. And she starts a new life with the baby. And that's basically your film. The one one plot thread that I forgot is that the stage actress Uma Roja uh, uh, shows up in Barcelona again because the production of Streetcar has moved from Madrid to Barcelona. They have a long engagement at a theater in Barcelona. And through a somewhat contrived set of circumstances, Manuela becomes Uma Roja's personal assistant and becomes entangled in her life as well. And I think that's about it. <laughs> I think so as well. I, I wasn't 100% linear in my, in my synopsis, but that's, that's, that's pretty much the major stuff. That Remind me um, the character of uh, Uma Roja again. This uh, is one of the ensembles that I'm finding myself light on in my remembrance. Uma is the stage actress. She's uh, She p- plays Blanche Dubois in yes. Streetcar. She's a little... She's a little. She's she's sort of like a Gloria Swanson, uh, Sunset Boulevard type. Maybe a little bit past her prime. Yes. A sort of aging star. The aging actress. The aging actress. That's right. Who is at first she seems a little bit uptight, but then she kind of, you know, uh, grows to uh, grows to appreciate the friendship of people like Manuela and eventually Agrado. And her protege, uh, whom she is a surrogate, essentially a surrogate mother to, is a young actress with a heroin habit who plays Stella in the in the production of Streetcar, and her name is Nina. I was very anxious to hear how uh, how Colin managed to sum this up because <laughs> I started realizing that, um, and in his um, summation, um, that it uh, he hit a point in which he said that's pretty much the plot and then carried on <laughs> to tell you the rest of uh, Act 2 into the resolution. And he was absolutely right that, that at that point it becomes this mixed bag, mixed bag journey of, of um, her, her self-discovery through these other female characters yeah. and her being kind of the crossover between all of these. It would typically almost be almost, um, 
almost B stories, but instead it's a collection of B stories that create the story. Yeah, yeah. And um, and her relationship with each one of these women. A motivar, um, and I think this even flashes in some version across the uh, the main trailer that was released for this film. But Amolvar dedicates um, the film to all actresses who have played actresses, to all women who act, to men who act and become women, to all the people who want to be mothers, to my mother. Um, now, that's not exactly how it flashes across the screen on the trailer, but there's some version of that that he actually puts the words up, and it's you know, a pretty romantic um, notion. Yeah. And, um, and without a doubt, this, this was his, to some degree, homage to his own mother and the many faces of his own mother. Um, which I thought was pretty beautiful into itself. Um, and to get back down to that, Amoldovar, obviously, being a male director that made a film um, about mostly females, for Amoldovar, this is absolutely a signature aspect to his um, filmmaking. Never has he made a film that I know of, unless it's within his last three that I haven't seen, that had a male heterosexual protagonist. Um, one of his last three may have. Um, so just a little bit on Amoldovar and kind of um, what some of his signatures are. Um, this film also, um, as an example of um, some of his artistic labelings and, and expectations, um, is, is a pretty nice example as well. That as Colin went through the basic narrative, obviously there's heavy, heavy irony interwoven around every corner. Um, the setup already has implanted irony everywhere that it possibly can. Many times this could come across as melodrama. This could come across as um, heavy-handed. Um, but somehow in a Moldovar films, he creates um, kind of a, a, a dreamy landscape to some degree, um, bright, saturated colors, um, this kind of fantastical reality that in some of his earlier films, he was almost detached by some of the more ex from some of the more eccentric characters. In this film in particular, he feels actually very intimately attached to many of the characters. Um, I can remember the scene where, um, where the mother reacts to, is in the hospital that she works at, I believe, and reacts to hearing about her son's death. Mm -hmm. And the doctors, it's a very awkward scene and it's, um, and it's blocking as well. It's real cute and interesting how the doctors move around their space in that scene. Um, to make it as uncomfortable as possible. Right, right, right. And, and they almost walk up comedic. to her. Yeah, they walk up to her to tell her that her son is dead, and then they take a beat of silence. Yes. And then they turn around and they go get chairs <laughs> yes. and, and bring them back and then sit down it's and then start on, the conversation. It's bordering on physical comedy at it a is, moment that it it's is, least appropriate. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. I, I think it is physical comedy, and that's, well, we'll get to it. Keep going. And so by the time, before, almost before the words even come out of the doctor's mouths, we regret the mother just goes into a head down well that yeah. almost soap operatic and um mm -hmm. but an extremely potent perfect scene for this film and within the context of this film so that says a lot about a multivar lots of wailing women in it, this episode in both of these films <laughs> lots absolutely of, lots of i i hesitate to use the word but lots of female hysteria we might actually even have to discuss a scream -a meter in this film yeah like like put them uh head to head and see, yeah. see who won <laughs> but um but that scene accentuated exactly what I'm talking about. Um, the over-the-top melodrama being utilized so naturally within his overall tone and style of uh, cinema. 
and a lot of um, and once again dealing with subject matters that are so sensitive, subversive to many people, um, out of the norm for many people's um, more traditional um, social understandings, and yet he handles them not by a dark, gritty visual tone, but instead these bright, saturated, light, beautiful costumes that, that pop, colors that pop. And this is the visual atmosphere that you're being presented, these very, very serious subject matters in. Um, you're dealing with HIV at, you know, the 90s when this, not saying that it's not still a very, very um, um, pertinent concern to society, but in the 90s when <coughs> the question mark was still much larger on um, right. where this disease was going to go and what it was going to do to our society. Yeah. Um, so you're dealing with HIV, you're dealing with young motherhood, you're dealing with numerous aspects of dysfunctional motherhood, um, you're dealing with... Um, absent fathers. Absent fathers, you're dealing with um, women doing their best to be strong and to be good mothers um, mm. against all odds. Um, a little reflection on Cassavetes as far as um, mm. his homage to um, the strength of women against all odds. Yeah. Um, and so I feel like all of the challenges of all these various women that... Um, that she comes across and that she inter ends up getting intertwined in their lives in Barcelona once again, very much a reflection of her. And, and all of these, I think, Amaldivar, I think, when approaching this, seems to be trying to write his mother through all of these characters, that each one of these is some little piece of his mother. We talk about art cinema and we talk about mainstream cinema often as some sort of stringent duality. And on this podcast, we tend to do the same thing. And we almost yeah. talk about art cinema as if it's a genre, um, right. which from my perspective, and, and, and I think I'm pretty valid on this, that it doesn't really cleanly fall into the scope of a genre. And if anything, I more see it as the first or second hand of a cinematic duality um, that intertwines and interweaves infinitely from the very beginning of cinema. In 1898, we have the Lumiere brothers and we have Edison from the very, very early experimentation with cinema and moving image. You have Edison who's approaching it very scientifically, shooting things that are just very, very realistic, just to simply play on the spectacle of motion film, that it's all about the spectacle. It's all about mm -hmm. entertaining people with this seemingly magical device. Lumiere brothers very much went into these very intimate, very human explorations, a mm -hmm. soft kiss amongst elderly people. Um, and, and so already from the very start, you had Lumiere Brothers saying, hey, there's some artistic potential here. And you had Edison saying, hey, this is spectacle. And then it branched off and continued in that way. You know, while, um, while we have Birth of a Nation writing the language of narrative cinema and mainstream cinema for years to come, we also have Maya Darren doing completely avant-garde, um, non-narrative, non-linear um, films. So cinema has always been both. And I think Amoldovar, like a few others, is a beautiful example of this, but he's also not only a beautiful example of this, as many are, he is one that uses a lot of art cinema techniques, art cinema approaches, indie cinema approaches, is a pure auteur, um, and yet has risen to the absolute top of the cinematic world as far as mainstream acclaim. Mm -hmm. That he is an international superstar. Um, his films are broadly accepted as digestible and, and entertaining and enjoyable, not actually even more than even in Spain, 
in the rest of the Western world. This always stuns me to some degree when a filmmaker, particularly with a film like All About My Mother, is able to rise to mainstream appeal and a broad appeal. And I'm not quite sure how, it, how they do it. And stylistically, there's a certain duality to a Moldovar that I think I can draw a line to a few other filmmakers that have done this as well, is that his style almost plays like a parody. And so even though he's dealing with these very sensitive subject matters, somehow the fantasy element of it, the dreamscape element of it, the bright saturated colors, the, the lightness that he presents these very serious subject matters through seems to open a door to a very broad audience that I, having watched these films, not understanding that context, never would have guessed that he was anything other than an underground fringe art cinema um, filmmaker. Um, however, once again, all of his films seem to have a broad appeal. I know that Almodovar in general is kind of a superstar in Spain, and I know that his films are received a lot more. Main. I, I imagine they get wide releases in Spain where they get uh, limited releases here, but I don't know to what extent this is considered a mainstream film. Right, and so, and speaking of that, that obviously we have to understand the European sensibilities, that mm -hmm. mainstream and art cinema are, are a little more naturally integrated mm -hmm. um, in France, Spain, Italy, than they are um, in the United States, that we draw a line between the two maybe a little bit more stringently than some of the other nations do. So yeah. in that intertwining um, duality that I was speaking of where really one bars from the other unapologetically, mm. um, that, um, that in Europe that's a little bit more of a natural approach yeah. um, to filmmaking. So that answers a little bit of the question. But yes, a Moldovar Films, he is a national hero. I'm glad that we started there on the question of how mainstream is this? Is this a mainstream film? Because um, I was thinking about it, and uh, there was another film that came out in 1999, American film called Boys Don't Cry. Ha ha! That was came the out same the same year, year um, which also dealt with trans issues, and. This film is just so much more evolved and so much more nuanced in its treatment of what it is to be trans than that film is. I mean, this like that film essentially was, hey, it's a girl pretending to be a boy and she's putting on a disguise. How brave they were to you, tackle this controversial right. issue. And then you want to point to a Moldovar and be like, right. um, he's been doing this for 15 years, guys. Right, exactly. <laughs> and the And the fact that he actually made a film with trans characters that were were real and developed and nuanced and actually treated as the gender that they are <laughs> rather than, you know, treated as the gender that the mainstream audience wants them to be. Yes. And is not is very pointed in saying that no, this is not a costume, it's not a disguise that these people are putting on, this is who they are. Even this very, you know, this past Oscar season, there was a big film called The Danish Girl that was like, this was supposed to be the big, like, trans moment for Hollywood and the yes. big moment when we finally embraced trans characters, and they fucked that up. Uh-huh. Absolutely. <laughs> and, like, there's no, it's like, for some reason... We still have to put it in our framework. Yeah. We, we can't 
except that it's truly something different that we have to make the stretch to understand it. We have to bring it to our framework, our paradigm. Hollywood just can't seem to figure this shit out. And meanwhile, what, how old is this film? Uh, This is like, what, 17 years old Mm -hmm. now? Oh, yeah. It's going on 20 years old. Almodovar has been doing this for ages, and in Hollywood, they still can't fucking get it right. And, and that was something that... And and he was doing it by no means intending to push buttons, where these American films right. literally have this vibe, almost a, a pretension and a pride in, look at the buttons we're pushing. Even though the trans characters are not the main focus of the film, I think they're... Their their presence and the way that they are treated is a way to get into the film thematically because there's a very important scene where – so after Manuela quits her job as Uma, the actress's personal assistant, um, in order to take care of the pregnant Rosa – her friend Agrado, the trans woman, former prostitute, s- steps in and takes over as the personal assistant. And there is one night where uh, both actresses, both of the lead actresses in the play are unable to perform because they're both in the hospital. And um, Agrado goes out there and says, hey, uh, unfortunately, we have to cancel tonight's performance. You can go and get... Um, you're a refund on your ticket if you want, but if you want to stay and have some entertainment, I'll tell you my life story. And this is a very important scene because it's just her on stage in front of a closed red curtain telling people about herself. Oh, wow. And she ends it. I've almost it, forgotten about this. Yeah, it's, it's a really powerful scene, and she ends it with um, what is essentially a very as you said, very formalist, very, very intentional and obviously deliberate that this is to be like one of the important thoughts that you take away almost could be the tagline of the film that is spoken at the end of this. And it's a really, I'm going to get a little choked up saying this because it's a really powerful sentiment. She says, the more you become more authentic, the more you resemble what you've dreamed of being. And just that That's that sentiment right there, it's such a beautiful sentiment, and it's completely contrary to Hollywood's treatment of trans characters, which is that they're less authentic. They're putting on a costume, putting on a disguise. She's saying, no, because I've changed my body, because I've changed my appearance to resemble what I feel inside, that makes me more authentic. This is, um, as you say that, I'm almost getting creepy chills flowing through my body thinking about how um, America has received um, trans culture in recent days and with the pop culture exposure Mm -hmm. and realizing not only how far we are behind in time and trying to digest this, but but truly just how far behind we are. (laughs) We really are. Yeah. And that sentiment that she expresses at the end of her little... Her little talk, like I said, could be the tagline of the film because it is all about people trying to express themselves and and trying to be who they authentically are in the face of what society expects of them. Um, and really by people, what I mean is women. <laughs> right. Because as Todd pointed out, there are 
basically no men in the film. They're de-emphasized. You have the son who is dead. <laughs> you have um, Rosa's father who has dementia and has to be taken care of essentially like a child. So Rosa's mother is put in essentially a... She even says it at one point, I have to take care of her father like he's a child. So he's in. she's in two motherhood positions. She has to be a mother to her daughter and a mother to her husband. Um, and then, of course, you have even the father of the two children that the plot hinges on is not a man. So that should really tell you something about how much men are de-emphasized in the plot. And so women trying to be what they feel they truly are. A perfect example is Rosa. And <laughs> it's nice. One of the things that the two films that uh, we selected for this uh, episode have in common is they both have nuns doing things that nuns aren't supposed to do. <laughs> uh, Rosa gets pregnant by one of the prostitutes whom she is supposed to be helping as part of her social work as a nun. Um, and, and so she, you know, is a, a sexual person, obviously has some degree of sexuality and sexual desire. Um, but you know, she has for many reasons, part of which being her sort of conservative uptight mother has ended up going into the church and becoming a nun. Whereas was that ever what she was meant to do? Is that the authentic version of who Rosa is? Probably not. I'm interested in asking if um, you're as smitten as I am by um, Helmut of our um, presents characters without judgment. That is another thing that I was going to get into. It's amazing. Yeah. Even though they're in these situations that could very easily be thrown into puritanical moralistic judgment. Right, um, right. Draw them into a black and white, uh, good and bad. And instead, they're these very rich, full characters. Absolutely. That, that are ambiguous, just trying to figure out life. Yeah. And instead, you, they're, they're just... Yeah, I think his natural empathy and, and lack of judgment. I, I, I think it's gorgeous. Yeah, the ultimate example of that, and again, this was one of my talking points. Uh, the ultimate example of that is Lola, who is supposed to be essentially the villain of the piece, mm -hmm. and is kind of like a Harry Lime, uh, third man type character in that the people talk about Lola for an hour <laughs> and a half before she finally shows up. They talk about her as if she's just the devil incarnate the first thing you hear about her is that she 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 robbed um agrado and was staying with her and then stole everything she had um you know and, and ran away and then you find out that she knocked up um rosa and gave her hiv and then you find out that she knocked up manuela and left her and and she's just portrayed as this horrible person and even when manuela he meets her, you know, encounters her for the first time in the film at Rosa's funeral. She says something like, you're a, you're a disease, you're an epidemic, mm -hmm. you know, you're not a person. But, I mean, like, damned if you don't feel just as, just as much sympathy for this character the way she's portrayed as you do for any of the other ones. Absolutely. And it's just, you know, she's just, as you said, just a confused person trying to 
trying to make her way out. through. Yeah, yeah, trying to figure <laughs> shit out, make her way through the world. And I think it's almost impossible to discuss this aspect without thinking about Amoldovar himself, mm -hmm. and that all of this just seems to be very organic to his perceptions of the world. When we ask why does Amoldovar use um, transfigures so often in his films, I think that it's, there's a very natural connection there of, of mm -hmm. this of, of a theme that he repeats altruistically throughout all of his films, which is trying to get a little bit more honest with yourself and and. Um, and accepting the fact that we're all flawed mm -hmm. and that we're all um, trying to find a more true version of ourselves through mm -hmm. all of these, you know, obstructions. Yeah. We could talk about this film for hours and hours because there's so much there. I was really kind of amazed by how well-written this film is. It's that, it's that auteuristic thing, like... The visual style appealed to me a lot, but what really, really got me was the writing. <laughs> I, I love it that you brought up his writing. because The he, dialogue is so smart and it's so yes. snappy and it's almost like, it's, you know, like sometimes it almost feels like a, like a, like a, uh, what is it? Howard, Howard Hawks film. Yeah. You can't keep up with it because right. like everybody's quipping and it's like his girl Friday style repartee. Or once again, almost like the Coen brothers, you can almost, um, accuse it of being seeming almost too perfect, too contrived, too set up, but yeah. instead it plays perfectly. Yeah. So instead it just comes across it. Like you said, as clever, quick, right. Beautifully integrated from beat to beat writing mm -hmm. and, yeah it's um, such smart writing not just so the dialogue so but the scenarios too yeah. yeah and he actually made a statement in something that i was reading um building up to this that he always starts off writing autobiographically as i think most pure auteurs would always admit to mm. um and then the challenge and the time and the effort goes into leaving the autobiography behind and turning them into fictional characters. Mm -hmm. And he goes, that's where the writing comes in. That's where the challenge is. I want to read one or two quick um, segments from some critiques on this film that I think touch on um, some things that we have said here that, mm -hmm. that'll be kind of nice little inserts. But um, Bob Graham of the San Francisco Chronicle, and this was um, after the, the release of the film, in other hands, these characters might be candidates for confessions and brawls on the Jerry Springer show, but here they are handled with utmost sympathy. Mm. None of these goings-on is presented as sordid or seedy. The presentation is as bright is a bright as bright, glossy, and seductive as a fashion magazine. The tone of All About My Mother has the heart and on-the-sleeve emotions of soap opera, but it is completely sincere and by no means camp. I yeah. love that. I yeah. thought that was a really dead on. And then I want to read this one because it's Roger Ebert. <laughs> and, um, and I found it interesting, and I, I just simply want to hear your response to it. By no means negative, just interesting. Um, you don't know where to position yourself while you're watching a film like All About My Mother. And that's part of the appeal. Do you take it seriously, like the characters do? Or do you notice the bright colors and flashy art decoration, the cheerful homages to Tennessee Williams and All About Eve, and see it as a parody? A Moldovar's earlier films sometimes seem to be manipulating the characters as an exercise. Here the plot does handstands in its eagerness to use coincidence, surprise, and melodrama. But the characters have a weight in reality as if a Moldovar has finally taken pity on them, has seen that although their plights may seem ludicrous, they are real enough to hurt. Yeah. I really like that. That was an interesting passage from Ebert because uh, I knew – I agree with it, but I 
I disagree in that I knew exactly where to position myself because like I really felt I felt these characters so deeply. You know, I Same. was right there with them. I I bought into their I bought into their 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 plights and their situations one hundred percent. But he is right, and I brought the I I brushed over this earlier when I was talking about the contrived circumstances that get her backstage and into the employ of the actress. But yeah, totally leans completely on implausibilities and coincidences and like the plot like if you were to you know actually submit it to the plausibility test (laughs) fail completely completely but i've shared this on this uh, on this podcast before and i i continue to say this i like that shit Uh i like twisty plots i like contrived coincidences Uh i like you know circumstances implausible circumstances i like that stuff this is good this is good storytelling that's exactly what what i was gonna say that is storytelling yes irony around every corner not just one big ironic (laughs) moment at the climax Uh irony around every corner yeah yeah this is what makes good stories because this is what makes life yeah yeah period and, and, you know, we could, like I say, we could be here for hours and hours and hours if we were really going to get into all of the, all of the thematic depth this film has and the layers of motherhood and responsibility and social, the weight of social expectations and all the irony, like there's, I, there's, there's multiple levels of irony packed into every situation that happens in this film. And it's just, there's, there's too much to... There's way too much to dissect in the in the time that we have, so I'm not even gonna try. But um, yeah. I think I brought up the 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 things that touched me most about the film, and you know, it's subjective, and and, and everybody's gonna come away with a different thing that touched them most. But um, I think I've I think I've pretty much said my piece on that. I will throw out one last thing, and this is something we kind of talked about with the woman. Is this a feminist film? Can a <laughs> do the themes in this about about women and trans women appeal to me so much because I am a cisgender man and it's made by a cisgender man? Is it a movie about trans women by cis men for cis men? I'm so glad you just brought <laughs> this up. Um, I'm pretty sure. Um, Colin and I read each other's notes and seeing as his notes are in his head I'm not sure how that happened for Uh this episode because I don't think either one of us has brought up a single major point that the other one didn't Uh want to address Yeah, yeah. Um, can you escape any version of that male gaze any version of that subjective experience to truly write honest female characters and something that a Moldovar has been um, almost I think by most people bewilderingly acclaimed for is that he is a male that somehow seems to write female roles better than most female (laughs) writers write them. (laughs) And his female actresses have made statements of the same sort, Mm -hmm. that he writes roles more honest to females than most of the female writers and directors they've worked with. Mm -hmm. Um, Now, obviously, I'm not going there at all. I'm just simply pointing out that he has gotten a lot of acclaim for his ability to connect um, to the female plight. And when you talk or when you hear him talk on the matter, it seems completely unforced, completely natural, and somehow the the 
in some way, it's how he sees the world. There is so little male gaze here. Like, there's no males to do any gazing <laughs> here. There's never any, like, you know, there's never any nudity. There's not any, like, there's one scene where the um, younger actress, Nina, um, like, you know, is being dressed uh, by by uh, Agrado and she takes her clothes off. But, you know, she's in her underwear. But the focus of the sexuality in that scene is on Agrado and her penis. And yes. there's this lovely, there's this thread that runs through the whole thing where everybody's so, you know, cause Agrado is a, is a trans woman, but she still has her male genitals. So <laughs> there's this thread running where every, all the women are fascinated by her dick. The only scene that has, that could be any like male gazing in any way where this young actress is taken off her clothes is focused on, <laughs> on um, a woman's penis. Obviously, Almodovar has great respect for performers. I think that's a th- th- that's something you didn't bring up when you were talking about his um, his trademarks. But yes. my understanding is so many of his films have to do with performance and Absolutely. performers. And he has and, a uh, very you know, intimate relationship with his performers. Yeah. Um, they speak universally, adoringly of yeah. him. Yeah. So he obviously loves actors and you know as actresses. you said this film is dedicated to uh you know actresses who play actresses and there's a certain sense like i was talking about before with the authenticity there's a certain sense to where he understands that an actor is not just playing a role an actor has to become something in order to do what they do that goes right to the heart of the themes of the film uh and with that being said I cannot I don't want to I want to stop talking about this film without giving across the board accolades to the cast. Absolutely. Um, Cecilia Roth, the lead who plays Manuela, s- what a range that woman has. Like she goes everywhere in this film. The, She's the melodrama, all of that hysterical wailing that she does, all the way from the highest highs to like these tiny tiny little subtle acting moments just looks and glances that she does so well and also realizing that these performers are not only being asked to perform they're being asked to perform in a very specific style right um by a a tour that only directs in that style so (laughs) it's not necessarily something that they've done before in that exact way you're talking about bridging the melodrama with the realism and things of that sort absolutely so yeah cecilia roth is just magnificent um Penelope Cruz, such an innocence and such a just like just like you know purity. I, ironically, as the nun who is knocked up, she has the most just like childlike purity of any character in this film. Antonia Antonia San Juan, who is a cis female playing a trans female in this film, who plays Agrado, with the quick repartee and the lightning dialogue, and she's just fantastic too. Yes, and she you know is really, it's not a glamorous role by any means, and she does a fantastic job. Marisa Paredes, who plays Uma, the aging, you know, the fading star, she has this this uh, dignity mixed with this kind of raunchiness and willingness to mix it up and sort of sort of kind of a devil-may-care attitude. Omotovar, as a filmmaker, is the epitome of a man that loves cinema. Hmm. He loves cinema more 
than anything. He even had made a comment about this at one point that he may love cinema more than he loves life. And he finds himself <laughs> walking through life, often realizing that all of it is simply inspiration for his next film. Yeah. And he has to check himself on that from time mm-hmm. to time. His heart, his soul, his love, his life is cinema. They are one in the same. His life and his cinematic um, creations are one in the same. And I could not give a bigger compliment to a filmmaker. So is it time for my final verdict? This film made me cry a lot. <laughs> I cried at the beginning, and then I cried in the middle, and then I cried in the end. And then afterwards, thinking about it, I cried some more. <laughs> and then sitting here talking more. about it a little bit more. Yeah, so, um, yeah, high, high, high brow. High uh, brow. Absolutely brilliant. And it was a good impetus to check out some more Almodovar. There you go. And here's all, to Almodovar. Here's to Almodovar, all about my mother. <laughs> Highbrow. Yeah. So this week I had the um, intriguing pleasure and experience of uh, watching Alucarda. Um, and, um, and I'm going to start off with, um, as I typically do, I'm going to read you a really um, pretty terrible log line. Oh, nice. And then I'm going to read you um, a revised version that I stole and wrote myself. So the log line that is, that is on IMDb. A young girl's arrival at a convent after the death of her parents marks the beginning of a series of events that unleash an evil presence on the girl and her mysterious new friend, an enigmatic figure known as, Alucon- as Alucarda. Demonic possession, Satan worship, and vampirism follows. Vampirism follows. So that is my example. Yeah, that's a pretty terrible. Oh, an atrocious log <laughs> <It's> line. really <laughs> About as bad as it gets. Um, it, it tried to summarize the entire narrative. It, it kind of misstated the narrative. It's overly wordy. It could have been as simple as this. Two teenage orphan girls living in a comet unleash a demonic force. That's a pretty solid log line. That's all you need. That's it. And then you can work on that and come up with a better one and email it to me. <laughs> <laughs> so the film actually um, opens up with a very um, interesting pre-credit sequence. Um, very, very art cinema, by the way. Like, excessively art cinema. Um, all I could keep thinking was, am I watching uh, The Holy Mountain um, by Hodorowsky? Um, stylistically, it's extremely staged. Um, a little bit over the top in its acting. So in this opening sequence, you basically see almost a um, Virgin Mary-esque figure um, laying in this hut temple type of structure. Um, There's a lot of um, um, red fabric flowing around. There's lots of statues, um, religious icon statues. Um, Starts off with this lovely, beautiful, slow pan around that eventually, that is just simply showing off the atmosphere and eventually comes into a shot where 
an old mystical gypsy type character stands up into the frame holding a bloody child. Really exquisite opening shot. So, huge thumbs up on opening shot, one of my obsessions. He's holding a baby, and the mother says something along the lines of, take the baby away to protect it. She wants him to take the baby from her to protect it against whatever. And I can't remember the, exactly what the details were. And this kind of gypsy, man-of-the-woods, crazy, mystic character um, says, of course, I'll take your child away. And she says, take it to the convent. Let them raise it. Cut to credits, and then we come into our story. So as we come into our story, we see a young teenager, um, or a 15-year-old teenager, um, being brought in by horse and buggy to the convent, which is also an orphanage. Um, after she arrives at the convent, she has her introductions with the nuns, and then she's guided to a room where she meets Alucarda. Alucarda is also a 15-year-old orphan, but Alucarda has lived at the convent her entire life. Very quickly and very easily, you piece together the fact that Alucarda is the baby that was born in the woods pre-title pages. Justine and Alucarda become fast friends, like very, very fast friends. They, they advance this part of the story pretty quickly. Go on an adventure into the woods away from the convent. Um, now, once they're, um, they're in the woods, they come across, um, I believe the first thing, well, first of all, they're rolling down the hill, they're enjoying each other, there's definitely flirtation going on, there's definitely a vibe of, of, um, of a crush forming between the two of them, kind of an immediate um, kind of love connect. Um, there's definitely something underlying it. Alucarda, in, particularly, in particular, you can tell, has kind of claimed Justine as hers immediately. Um, they come across um, this band of mysterious gypsies. Um, they look very similar to the old woodsmen who had taken the child in the very beginning of the film. Um, this band of gypsies is, um, once again, welcoming and, and, and kind of playful. But they come across um, a hunchback gypsy who speaks of dreams and, 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 and some kind of mystical elements to Alucarda that send her a little nutty. And she goes running off in fear. Um, at this point, Justine chases after her and wants to make sure that she's okay. Um, at this point, they reconnect, and then they continue their adventure through the woods. And I believe... Um, they go to the temple where Alicarda, or whatever the structure was, where Alicarda was born. And they discover it, and Alicarda immediately says, I recognize all this. All this feels familiar to me, on and on. And so they've basically discovered her birthplace, the place that her mother had sent her away from to protect her from whatever um, danger and, and demonic elements she sensed, or whatever it may be. Um, so while they're in this structure, they come across a casket, they open the casket, and what seems to be the bones of Alucarda's mother are in the casket, and a demonic force comes out and possesses the girls. Um, this scene is played out with very little visual abstraction or surrealism. In fact, it's played mostly with sound. Um, the girls are, here's where we come into the screaming. The girls are screaming and screaming and <laughs> screaming. And there's all these static shots of the two of them, uh, close-up static shots. And so all that's just screaming and a really eerie, I believe, groaning sound, um, kind of horror film, ambient track. 
Um, and this is how it's played out that they become possessed. I really appreciated that, actually, that it wasn't done over the top. And so the girls do become possessed. However, they're not full-fledged possessed. They're still, it's inside of them, but they can still, to some degree, be normal teenage girls as well. They were turned back to the convent um, where they're sitting in um, one of the church services and a um, and the priest is giving his sermon and, <laughs> and he, he has some pretty interesting things to say such as uh, we must live within the rules of our religion, the only true religion. Otherwise, the evil one will find a place um, within our bodies and take our souls away, and then we shall burn in hell forever. Great children's story. Um, great story to tell a bunch of 15-year-old girls. <laughs> and then you go 15 across... 15 and younger. And younger. Then you go across the congregation, this really slow pan, with all these small children just crying and crying and fearful and fearful. This touched a really personal note with me, actually. Mm. Um, I grew up with a bit of this puritanical, um, yeah, pain as well. And they're both chatting in the back of the room, as teenage girls will do. And this is after the possession has happened. And they're both chatting, and they get called out by the priest. And he's like, you know, what was the last thing I just said? And Alucarda stands up and instead starts saying something along the lines of, um, you don't know what you're talking about, and Satan, 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 this, this, this. Makes some pronouncement of, Satan and being possessed. And the priest at this point catches on and, and everybody catches on of, hey, these girls might be possessed. There might be something going on. They're separated and, and they try to address the fact that they're possessed and they're going to perform an exorcism. They're debating how to handle the girls. At one point or another, there becomes this surrealist dreamlike um, situation in which Alucarda and Justine um, almost, I believe, almost like surreally get transposed into the gypsy world and there's this giant orgy going on I, I this is a very significant scene to me there's this giant orgy going on it's very ritualistic they're amongst all the gypsies even though i believe they're technically at the convent i think it's something like that but one way or the other they're amongst the gypsies they're having the orgy and they're literally beckoning satan and and basically finishing off whatever the process of the possession was. Um, the hunchback comes in and ends up playing a very significant role in this ritual. He brings the blade to Alucarda in which she shares the blood between her and Justine and they have a ritualistic moment where I believe they cut each other's breasts. Um, they're nude at this point, upper body up, or waist up at least. They cut each other's breasts and then smear the blood in each other's mouths. Um, very sensual, kind of lingers on it for a while. Um, and as well as the first touches of vampirism a little bit that we get to the point where they're going to perform an exorcism on them. Um, the, the priest, um, all the nuns are all in the room. Uh, they're going to try to get the demons out of the girls. And so they go through this exorcism in which they literally, you watch them do it to Justine, they prod her with a long blade-like needle in numerous spots, almost um, stigmata style. Um, in numerous different places on her body and she starts to bleed. At this point, she dies, actually. Mm -hmm. um, at the same point, the one scientist doctor figure who we'd only met very early in the film comes rushing in, sees that they're performing this exorcism and is appalled. He's like, what are you doing? You just killed this young girl in mysticism and he's the hand of rationalism. Pulls Alicardo away and he takes Alicardo home with him to protect her. 
and to take care of her because he believes that science is the way to address this issue while they believe that an exorcism is the way to address this issue. At home, he also has a blind daughter um, that he loves very dearly. Um, now, while he has Alicarda at his house, he is called back to the convent saying this horrible thing has happened. You have to come. You have to come. So he leaves, still believing Alucarda is just a troubled young woman um, in his rational mind. He leaves Alucarda and his blind daughter, similar ages, at home, and he rushes back to the convent to see what's happened. When he shows up at the convent, things are shredded and torn apart, and Justine is missing, even though she was supposed to be dead. And so something has happened, and they're trying to figure out who stole Justine's body or what may have happened. Um... This builds basically into the journey through the temple to try to solve the mystery, to try to figure out what has happened. And as they go through this process, there's a lot of back and forth between the doctor and the priest, the two different sides, religion versus science. Um, and then little by little, the doctor opening up to some degree to the idea that this may be supernatural. And they finally come to the realization that it really was possession, that it really is the demon, that it really is Satan. He quickly pieces together that Alucarda is possessed as well, and that he left his lovely blind daughter home alone with this girl. So he rushes out of the convent to go back home, make sure his daughter is okay. All of this eventually leads to Alucarda having an all-out assault on the convent. Straight up, Carrie-style, Heather-style, that she comes mm -hmm. into the convent and burns it to the ground off of her supernatural powers. Mm -hmm. um, nuns start blazing, um, the structure starts crumbling. She basically burns the convent to the ground. And we end on a really nice image of a burning crucifix uh, and cut to black while the crackling fire still continues in sound. Yeah? Yeah. There you go. Powerful opening image, powerful closing image. So... There, there is some imagery in this film and ideas that will stick with you, has stuck with me. It's an old school kind of depiction of Satanism that even though this film came after The Exorcist, I think the and was inspired, a lot of it seems to have been inspired by The Exorcist. There are there is a depiction of of satanic evil in this that is much more tied to nature and the occult that we've kind of lost since The Exorcist, which brought it very much into the modern world, it's very, very much into the scientific. That was very interesting to me as well. That it seemed to be um, tying in a little bit of more of the authentic nature of Wicca. Mm -hmm. um, and there was even a point where Alucarda makes a comment to the priest, something along the lines of we want to live or I want to live. I, I, I want nature. I want life. I yeah. want light. He, she's like, you want darkness. You want fear. You want la, 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 aligning yeah. the two against one another in a very interesting way that I think we'll roll back around. Yeah. To. Justine comes back from the dead. She is resurrected in this film. You know, she emerges from a, a coffin filled with blood, which is one of those images that I absolutely love. And then she bites the throat out of the nun who, who discovers her. Uh, and the last image is a burning cross uh, or a burning crucifix, you know, to really drive that point home that like just as Alucarda tells the priest and like I think that this film probably is aligned more towards that Christianity is kind of death obsessed. I think it's pretty obvious them thematically through this that 
it's 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 shred with anti-clerical, anti-religious, anti-establishment um, themes. Um, however, the way it plays it narratively, in aligning the two against each other, the duality to where you have the gypsy witchcraft um, kind of satanic worship going on over here, and at the same time, the Catholic Church is depicted in a very similar way. So the two sides are depicted almost as, once again, two sides of the same coin. Somewhere in between the two, I drew the conclusion that there was possibly a relatively bold statement of existentialism here. Yeah. Um, and that um, that the actual intent of the film um, was very much to draw that parallel between the church over here that's saying it's fighting the darkness while the darkness over here mm. and the two are actually one and the same yeah. while somewhere in between is truth. So a little context, a little genre context. Um, there are two subgenres of horror slash exploitation which I think are instructive to look at when you're talking about this film. One is a genre called nunsploitation. A subgenre that is usually more associated with Europe um, as this film stylistically I think feels more like a Euro sleaze Euro exploitation film. Came about in the 70s although there were precursors and essentially these are films like i said when we were talking about uh, all about my mother nuns doing things that nuns are not supposed to do uh usually it's a very insular convent uh very secretive kind of this sense that what is going on behind the walls of this convent is not not for the outside world to see they have their own world that they've set up inside the convent and there's usually lesbianism there's usually some sort of either lesbianism or some sort of sexuality and there's very often flagellation um both of which happen in this film absolutely um and non-exploitation films tend to be extremely anti-authoritarian a thematic richness that is disguised as pure shock value this film very much does that. So it's located within the lineage of the nunsploitation films, even though it's not a typical nunsploitation film, because really it's not the nuns who are the main source of the degeneracy that drives the film. Is there intrinsically feminist critique intertwined in that as well? I, I would think there would have to I be. I would think there would have to be as well, <laughs> yes. You know, Mexico is a country that is so dominated by Catholicism and the Catholic Church. It's no accident that nunsploitation films tend to come from... Italy, Spain, Mexico, countries where the Catholic Church has a very tight hold, uh, both traditionally and still today. Uh, so, you know, occult horror from Mexico, there are lots of films like this, Satanico Pandemonio, um, the other, other films that Juan Lopez Moctezuma did, Mansion of Madness, which is kind of a um, inmates take over the asylum film, but it's got those blasphemous uh, religious elements to it as well. There's another subgenre of horror films, which is a little less well-defined than nunsploitation, and this is the lesbian vampire. <laughs> Certainly elements of that as well. The lesbian vampire film is, well, older than film, obviously. Usually we go back to Carmilla, 
the uh, novella by um, Le Fanu, Irish author of uh, Macabre Tales. This film, Alucarda, I've seen as I've seen cited as a loose adaptation of Carmilla. It's not really. It doesn't really have anything to do with Carmilla except for the lesbian vampire angle, and that's pretty much all there is to it. For some reason, and I think because le, you know homosexuality is in a in in sort of you know puritanical conservative traditional value system is seen seen as aberrant and vampirism is is sort of very tied in with aberrant sexuality um sexual degeneracy you know moral decay and all of that so it's there's certainly an exploitation element and there's certainly a a sort of conservative ick you know, icky moment <laughs> that 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 the subgenre plays upon. But this is a very rich vein that a lot of horror films of mind and they range all the way from softcore, you know, essentially softcore porn films to hardcore gore horror films. Uh so that's a little bit of background. You know, obviously this came uh a year after Carrie and three years after The Exorcist and you can definitely see the influence of both of those uh films in this but it feels somehow older it feels somehow m- more occult and a little grittier than any any of that kind of stuff it absolutely does and it's hard to think of this in the context of a Hollywood it seems to be a, a true amalgamation of, of 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 art cinema and slasher film like it seems half and half to me particularly during the first say 30 minutes of this film I actually wrote down in my notes at one point or another that this is art cinema Um, and then immediately after that wrote down um, something along the lines of reminiscent of Hodorowsky and then um, afterwards did my research and realized that um, um, Moctezuma, is that how I say his yeah. name? Moctezuma had worked with Hodorowsky. Yep. And that they actually came from the same world to some degree. To uh, be cult horror meets art cinema. Yeah, yeah. Very much so. Sure. Um, I also want to bring up that it uses numerous um, production techniques that were extremely common and extremely um, uh, notable to 70s cinema specifically. And to 70s, um, not only 70s cinema, but 70s art cinema. Zooms. Um, thank you. How did you know that was going to be the first thing that I said? Only in the 70s did people believe that the Zoom was a substitute for the Dolly. <laughs> now, there is lots of reasons to use a Zoom, but very few that don't include intentional artifice. <laughs> yeah. So if you're trying to use it without intentional artifice, you're probably going to fail, which is why past the 70s it's never been done again. Now, with that being said, the Zoom was used numerous times in a very interesting and very cool experimental way in this film, in a way that I would very much justify within the context of 70s cinema, particularly 70s art cinema. And there was one point that it was used as a substitute for a crane dolly shot, and it was artifice, and it was, once again, an example of why not to use a zoom as a substitute for Dolly. But it was done so smoothly, it almost got me. <laughs> it almost worked. Pretty good. And, and I was really impressed by that. Another thing um, they did was the whip pan. They would come off the image with a really fast pan over and then cut, um, kind of a natural transition built in. Used canted angles um, in, in very much the tonal way that you would expect canted angles to be used. Um, set something a little 
unsettling, um, um, to put something um, a little off kilter, of course, obvious. Um, they also did some direct cut-ins to where they would go from a wide shot or a medium shot and cut directly into a close shot without changing angle. Um, they used close-ups infinitely um, for mood. They used sound ahead of Lots image. Lots of close-ups on people's eyes. Lots of close-ups. <laughs> the, the last scene, I mean, I felt like I was almost watching. I don't know if it was a better version of Carrie or just equally potent, equally yeah. good. Yeah. yeah, equally intense. It was Carrie without the split screen. Yeah, exactly. But those same eye shots and burning shots, and yeah. it was wonderful. As long as we're talking about um, modes of production, I was glad I showed this film to Todd upon the rewatch, realizing that I know that Todd loves production design. And this Indeed. film has some absolutely spectacular production design. Yeah, I'm obsessed <laughs> with the interior of the convent. Oh, obsessed. yeah, totally. And that totally. opening sequence when Justine first comes into the convent mm-hmm. and it's all gothic rock and those blue light seeps coming in through the windows mm-hmm. as she's going up the spirally stair. It's I don't know gorgeous. if I don't know if they found these locations or if they dressed these like how much dressing they had to do on these sets. Some were absolutely dressed. The ones that felt stagier, there was no doubt about it. But uh-huh. on the ones like the interior of the convent, uh-huh. same here. It, if if that was truly constructed production design mm-hmm. then we're talking some minor ridley scott stuff here yeah, you know <laughs> yeah. so there are some low there are a handful of locations in this film the interior of the convent especially where they have the church services which is basically a cave mm-hmm. it's like a, a chapel that has been carved out of rock it, it just feels like you're like 600 feet underground uh-huh. you know uh this um this claustrophobic but also really beautiful and it's all lit by candles yes it's all like pretty much everything in here candles is, and lights is is, is is um diegetic lighting i Absolutely. don't think there's very much uh very little know, electricity stuff, I would electricity say. yeah no. um and so also the ruin in the forest one of the things i love about this film is the age that i, I keep i keep saying this film feels old and it feels classic and it feels almost ancient. Like everything in this film, the convent, the ruined temple, like it could have been prehistoric. I was going to say, it feels like it was shot in Mexico a few hundred years before it was actually shot in Mexico. Yeah. Yeah. It feels like it was shot when it was set. The image that I will never forget. If I were to pick one, one visual from this film that will probably stick with me forever is the blood from the self-flagellation seeping through the nun's habits. Yes. You don't realize what it is at first. And that is, I think, a great visual metaphor for what this film is about, which is repression, which is the quiet, almost unnoticed violence and horror that is under the surface they you know this religion that you know that you can't keep it from from seeping through though you try they're doing their best to repress it to cover it with this veil of purity to carry grace through the pain to carry grace through the pain but that blood is just constantly seeping through and that's like it's the whole film it's simultaneously beautiful and an incredibly disturbing and unsettling Agreed image. Agreed completely. And to carry that into the more complex um, aspect of this premise um, is that the obvious um, critique of established religion 
and um, the fear and the pain that often comes with the, um, the dogma and, um, of those religions, that there, this scene was also juxtaposed. So the self-flagellation scene, that is. Yeah. Um, that we have a self-flagellation scene when you finally see it, and they're all in the convent together, the priests, the nuns, um, and it's a it's pretty you know, brutal scene. Um, but the juxtaposition of that with the gypsy orgy scene Mm-hmm. It's the same thing. Yeah, it, yeah. Like, it's very intentionally aligned to show you both sides and the same thing. Yeah. Which so one is pain, the other is pleasure. I feel like this is a pretty bleak film overall. I don't really know if I see the same hope for a happy medium that you see in it. I'm not saying you're wrong, but I think kind of like this film pretty much you treats all humanity as equally corrupt and equally fallen, just from different sides. The, you know, the Satanists are way too bent on Satan. The Christians are way too bent on Christ. And the doctor is way too bent but on He still science. gave us the relief of the good nun. He still gave us the relief of Alucarda having some sort of honest, youthful desire for light yeah. and nature. Yeah. They, there's these little moments of, little moments well, of, of potential hope that I'll tell were dabbed you, in. I'll tell you what it is. Excess the film is critical of excess and so this film yes so this film was made in 1977 in mexico uh mexico was in an economic crisis in the midst of a horrendous economic crisis in 1977 because oil price in the in the early 70s oil prices went up mexico had a lot of oil and they were living high on the hog and they uh, invested a ton in this oil industry. At some point in the 70s, oil prices plummeted. Mexico had to borrow a ton of money from the United States, from other countries, um, uh, you know, trying to revamp their industry and trying to you know, get something like they invested in heavy industry. Um, all, of it, all of it fell apart. And the the currency, the peso, was just devalued and devalued and devalued. And, um, yeah, it, it was a country that was that had gone too far in one direction and now was suffering from it. So all the excess, the excess of religion over here, the excess of religion over here, the excess of reliance on this. Alucarda, yeah, maybe she started out with a pure desire to have nature and life, but went way too far in that direction and became corrupted. Also, of course, you know, Mexico is a country that for 71 years was ruled by the same political party, which was essentially an authoritarian government. Power in the same few hands for the majority of a century. They suppressed um, dissent. There were massacres of protesters, young leftists around the same time this film was made. That is very, very clear in the rabid, the feverish anti-authoritarian tone that this film has. Um, as far as Alucarda goes, that is the character of Alucarda. It's interesting the way that she is introduced. If you remember, Justine goes into her room, which appears to be an empty room, and then there's a shot of... Justine in the foreground, 
you look over her shoulder and there's darkness in the background and then Alucarda just appears dissolves out of the in. darkness, just dissolves in out of, almost out of nowhere. Yeah, I believe this is being shot through the mirror at this point, right? I think so, Or yeah. into the mirror. Yeah, yeah. It's, yes. not, it's not straight up surreal, but it has that feeling and she's uh-huh. creepy at first. In all black, by the way, in the only wearing, person in all black. Yep, everybody else wears white. All the nuns wear white. Justine wears sort of like bright light colors, light colors yeah. brightly colored dresses. And Alucard is all black. She kind of looks like, has that um, um, Darlene from Roseanne sort of vibe. Uh-huh. Immediately, even before any of this supposed possession happens, she's already doing things that that seem to contradict physical reality she appears out of nowhere and then she starts talking the first thing she first conversation she has with justine she starts telling her about all of these secrets that she has she finds secrets everywhere there's this sense that she's sort of peering past the veil of everyday normal reality and sort of seeing just a little bit far beyond our mundane our mundane world and Maybe that has to do with the fact that she was the child of darkness, you know, born in the in the opening. Or maybe it's just because that's what she is. Maybe she's inclined in that direction. Who knows? Or maybe it's just that she's a teenager. Right. That is looking through um, her first realization of anti-authoritarianism and into um, the possibilities of pure pleasure and desire. And so it's ambiguous from the very beginning when we meet this character. Um, They have a very overtly sexual beginning to their relationship. They have that scene where they roll down the hill in each other's arms, tumble down the hill, and they wind up on top of each other. Um, And then there's a lot of things that we don't see. The camera doesn't observe the entirety of their growing relationship, which leads me to believe that later, when when... when Justine freaks out, stands up in the middle of this priest's lecture on sin and just freaks out, what is she, what is that guilt about? Is it because they opened a grave? Is it because she already feels this demonic force inside her? Or is it because she had lustful thoughts or maybe even experiences with her friend uh, Alucarda? It's not exactly clear the source of that guilt. I took that for pure narrative. Um, granted, that that it was simply the minor possession they had gone through already. Mm. That's interesting. It could be a lot of things. That's and really is, is is possession in this film a metaphor for some of that other stuff? Right. Now we talked about. We touched a little bit on how the films that we selected have a lot in common. These are both films in which women and the relationships between women and the the social expectations placed on women are very, very much in the forefront. And men are very, very much devalued, emasculated, pushed to the background. I would argue, to whatever degree All About My Mother is a feminist film, this is just as much a feminist film as that. Interesting. The doctor and the priest, the two major male figures in this film, um, although being pushed to the background, still have an empowered air to them. They are still, in some way, the females are still submissive to their final rule, their final word, or their word holds some level of, of 
absoluteness or the females are in some way reliant upon their presence and their yeah, word see, and their authority. I sort of disagree with that because I think the priest and the doctor are the two most powerless characters in the film. And Possibly. they, 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 yeah, the females are sort of subjugated to them because that's how society is. Right. But for all practical purposes, they do nothing but make everything worse. As far as the male gaze goes, yes. And you can't, you can't get away from the fact that this is a 70s exploitation film. Right. I mean, whatever else it is, it is that first. There are orgies. It there is are a, beautiful young women naked. It is a 70s nude. exploitation film Absolutely. first. But, and maybe this is just... Maybe not first. Maybe I'm grasping at straws. <laughs> and maybe this is just a gloss that I'm putting on it, viewing this film historically, what, 40 years down the road. Mm -hmm. Is there a little bit of the fact that we're watching two obviously of age actresses who are both very beautiful with very nice boobs mm -hmm. who are playing 15 year olds. Uh -huh. Is there a little bit of intentional guilt of us enjoying watching these, these girls disrobe and make out? Is there a little bit, of guilt that we feel mirroring perhaps the guilt that the characters are expected to be subjugated under the weight of. It's sophisticated enough of a film, intelligent enough of a film, um, artistic enough of a film um, for that to be a very valid point. I tend to lean towards that it was um, default 70s male gaze, honestly. Okay. Um, that's just my tendency is to lean in that direction mm -hmm. and still firmly supporting the fact that the intent of the filmmaker was to make a feminist film and right. did so very in very um successfully, successfully <laughs> and 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 with with quite a bit of honest strength behind mm -hmm. that um premise yeah. um but um but i still do think that the default setting of of the male perspective is still there i talked about the bloody rags the bloody habits that the that the nuns wear it's very obvious that the on on many, if not all, of the nuns, the largest and most prominent area of bloodiness is down the front of the skirt. Mm -hmm. Pretty much all of the nuns have this streak of blood <laughs> that runs down the front of the skirt. Clearly, not literally a menstrual stain, mm -hmm. but clearly, clearly meant to evoke in you the idea of a menstrual stain. So the film starts with the the you know childbirth. That's the very first thing that happens in the film is childbirth. And then we get into these very complicated relationships that are going on with this woman with these devalued men and all the time the nuns are bleeding from the inside out staining what they you know what they have and their nuns meaning their sexuality is repressed meaning their uh, personal agency is is repressed but but that source of power is always there that source of childbirth that that source of femininity and it's on one hand it's the monstrous feminine on the on the on the catholic side because nobody likes to see a, a giant blood stain on anybody but from the pagan side it's really it it comes across as a source of strength and a source of power um that that manifests in again uh, very much like Carrie you mm -hmm. know linking 
the menstrual linking menses and the menstrual cycle to the unlocking of power that these women didn't know they had. And towards the end, when the resurrected uh, um, Justine emerges from that coffin filled with blood, yes, I mean, what, she is literally in a bath of blood. What more clear yes. visual metaphor can you have for a rebirth? not in weakness but in power coming forth from this bath of blood and then yeah. biting the the th you know the throat out of the most pious most repressed nun in the convent well, almost the, the the blood being the source of empowerment and the source of repression to some degree mm -hmm. or, yeah. or playing to both sides of it yeah. you know yeah. it it is what makes women the other to men mm -hmm. and it is also in many regards, what empowers and, and makes them unique and um, um, able to create life where right. men can't. Yep. I, I was obviously um, very smitten by um, many aspects of the production itself. Um, the more that I've spoken with Colin on the thematic um, value of the film, um, I become more and more interested as well. Um, I could actually go through this film and, and point out numerous scenes, numerous shots, numerous production design that I was almost giddy over, that I was excruciatingly excited about. Um, very artistic, um, very thought out. Um, whoever the cinematographer was, um, exquisitely well done job between um, the director and the cinematographer in coming up with the shot list itself and the concepts behind it even to the point of forgiving the gratuitous zooms and some of the things that were a little heavy-handed, that are a little heavy-handed in, in, in most 70s film that, that was playing in that direction. Um, the only thing um, that, that, that really jolted me out a bit um, was once again during the second half of the film is that I felt like there were a couple of narrative holes and that it became um, a, little bit, um, a little bit more cliche in its progression of narrative beats. Um, a little bit predictable and 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 left some of that um thematic and artistic tone behind but in talking to colin honestly i'm starting to forgive some of that and starting to realize that no it actually did carry all the way through and that i just fell into the heavier narrative towards the end so i don't think this is going to be much surprise i've, I've tried to stay kind of even killed throughout this and i don't think this is going to be any surprise to anyone i give this extremely highbrow yeah um, i've tried to keep it a little undertoned um because from the beginning, I was enamored by this film. From, I wasn't sure with the opening sequence, it was so stagey that I really mm -hmm. was a little worried that I was about to watch another Hodorowski film. I know for most <laughs> art cinema people, that's a good thing. Uh, I think I've made enough references to finding that to be one of the more pretentious filmmakers I've ever watched, mm -hmm. that, that you know where I stand on that. So that opening sequence um, had me a little nervous about that. From title page on, one thing after another that literally excited me um, on a production level, um, got my brain working on a thematic level. I loved it. Um, I, I could have easily claimed this one in my wheelhouse, particularly nice. the first half of the film and the production techniques. I'm glad you liked it, man. It's yeah. it's not a perfect film. It's not a perfect film. I don't want anybody, and it's not for everyone. I don't want anybody listening to this. But however, it is a very, very intelligently made film. Yeah. That's what I really want people to remember when watching it. And if you notice any of the holes, any of the imperfections, any of the gratuitous zooms, um, some of the lo-fi elements, pay attention to the things that really matter is what I would encourage you with this film. Um, extremely intelligent and extremely sophisticated artistically. Good film. Much, so. Damn good film. <laughs>
All right. Well, there you go. Uh, Two high brows and a lot of feminism. A lot of feminism, a lot of yelling. Yes. A lot of... Yeah. And I would like to dedicate this podcast to my niece, Beatrice. (laughs) (laughs) Bring the scream on, baby. (laughs) And this is what the devil does. He grants his virtues to expand his kingdom. The only valid one. God, with his lack of knowledge, does not understand this truth and opposes it with false thoughts and prayers. God, silence! Satan, 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 our Lord and Master, I acknowledge thee as my God and Prince. I promise to serve and obey thee as long as I shall live. I renounce the other God and all the saints. Don't listen to them. Don't listen to them. A moment. A word about next week. I have a special treat for Colin for the next round. This is a film that... um on many, many levels um, struck me um, in film school as um, extremely powerful and extremely um, eye-opening to what was possible in cinema. Stop me if you've seen it. I don't think you have. Sergei Eisenstein's Strike from 1925, Introduction to the Russian Montage, a completely different approach to filmmaking. I'm excited. I uh, have never heard of this film, though I've heard of the filmmaker. And uh, I think this is the oldest film we've had. I think so, too. All right. And uh, I am assigning Todd a film that, for many years after I first saw it, which was when it came out in 2002, referred to it as the scariest film I had ever seen. Oh, shit. And it's a film that had some notoriety back then, but I really haven't heard anybody talk about for the last, I don't know, 10 years. Directed by the Pang Brothers... Thai uh, Chinese co-production called The Eye. Uh, The Eye and Strike. So until then... I'm Todd. Keep it artsy. And I'm Cullen. Keep it crass. Okay, good people. As always, we would love to hear from you. The email is artscrasspodcast at gmail.com or you could say hi on our Facebook page. There is another podcast called Arts and Crass. They have a white logo. We have a red and black one. Should be pretty easy to tell who's who.